Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. All right, like a few uh, past weeks, this is actually not Ingrid Cochran. Um, however, this is the co-host, um, Matthew Portell. I am the Director of Education and Outreach at Paces Connection. Ingrid could not be with us tonight um, as we both seem to be timing our times off uh, differently, which works great because she's either here or I'm here. But I am actually extremely excited to have uh, another co-host tonight and Many of you who know Paces Connection, I can assure you probably know this amazing individual as many people um, admire her for her work that she's been doing for so long with Paces. So welcome, Carrie um, Sip, as the co-host for the podcast tonight. Carrie, you want to say hi? I'll say hello, and I'll also say I'm just thrilled to have Catherine on because I have read her book uh, one and a half times and just really love what she does, her humanity, and that she is going to be with us when we do our envisioning uh, the future of work, healing-centered workplaces uh, in June. Uh, our our conference then so it's we've been planning this for what Catherine almost a year so it, it's so good to have you here thank you thank you Matthew and as Carrie said we are really excited about the um, healings focused uh, workplaces conference that's coming up next uh, actually it's two months I don't even know what month I'm in but nonetheless we do have a very special guest and we are very excited um, that she's going to be bringing so much to this conversation. Catherine Manning is an uh, the author of The Empathetic Workplace, uh, Five Steps to Compassionate, Calm, and Confident Response to Trauma on the Job, and the president of Blackbird, D.C. She has worked on issues of trauma and victimization for over 25 years. As a senior attorney advisor with an executive office for the United States Attorneys for 15 years, Manning guided the Justice Department through its response to victims in cases ranging from terrorism to large-scale financial fraud to a child exploitation. Catherine, I don't have to read any more. That, I think, has probably, like most, intrigued me and our listeners. So welcome um, to the podcast, and tell us a little more about the Catherine story. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's really such an honor. Um, you all are both doing just incredible work, and it's wonderful for me to get to have this conversation with you. Um, to tell you a little bit about my background, I um, came to this work really out of a family history of domestic violence. Um, fortunately, my mother had the resources and the wherewithal to be able to leave, and I, I, I did not grow up in a violent household, but pretty much as soon as I got to college, I started volunteering on the hotline at the local domestic violence shelter. And it was that work and hearing some of the stories of those who were trying to find their way through the court system, um, which is really not well set up for those who are experiencing violence in their intimate relationships. Um, that's really what spurred me to go to law school. So um, I went to law school at the University of Virginia and after law school ended up at the Justice Department. And I was there for about 15 years 
um, doing training and policy and consulting on cases all around how the department worked with crime victims. And one of the things that I started to realize was that people didn't need different things based on what they what crime they were a victim of. You know, DOJ is very siloed, so the fraud people don't really talk to the trafficking people um, who don't talk to the terrorism people. But I was working with um, the victim issues in all of those different kinds of cases. And I just saw again and again that everybody needed to be acknowledged as a victim. Everybody needed to feel heard. Everybody needed resources and support. And then I began to realize that it wasn't just the victims in our cases who needed those things, that it was my colleagues. I would have a, you know, one colleague maybe whose father was dying or another who was dealing with a sort of bullying and belittling boss or another who thought that her ex-boyfriend maybe was stalking her. And I realized that these issues of trauma don't just appear in the criminal legal system. They're around us all the time. It was ultimately, Matthew, I would say probably 2018 when Me Too happened that I started really thinking about taking the experience that I had and the skills that I had gained and and trying to apply them a little bit more broadly. Um, and that's when I started working on the book. I, I felt in some ways like Me Too did a great job of um, kind of highlighting issues of violence, um, but it didn't do a very good job of helping people understand how to support survivors. And that was the thing that really motivated me. I thought people need some basic skills and how do you have a conversation about trauma in the workplace in particular? Um, so that's when I started working on the book. And um, the book ultimately was bought by, by HarperCollins in 2019, but in the way of publishing, it didn't get published until 2021. And in those two years, we had COVID and George Floyd and numerous environmental disasters and on and on and on. And so these issues of trauma in the workplace, I think, have become nearly impossible to ignore in most organizations, although many are, are trying. <laughs> But there are also organizations that are saying, you know, let's take this moment where we have seen so much pain and let's figure out how to build a new kind of future, a new kind of organization um, to, to help us through this era that we're in today. I mean, so much of what you said just continues to resonate with me, right? And I think timing is everything. And what you just said, there's a reason why I think the publisher needed unknowingly to to the timing of it, because, you know, you and I and Carrie were talking prior. Um, wow, we're in such an interesting space right now, cross sector, not one single sector, whether it's the private sector, whether it's the public sector. Most people know that, and listen, I came from a public ed and we certainly um, as a profession need this work. Um, immensely because um, so many people are struggling. I think the COVID pandemic opened Pandora's box of what unhealthy really looked like in the workplace. So just to um, kind of uh, stabilize all of us and centralize our own meaning of when we're talking about trauma-informed or healing-focused or uh, by the title of your book, Empathetic Workplaces, how do you define that? What is that? How do you just how do you define it? 
Sure. So um, first, the definition of trauma I use is maybe a little different than one that you might use in other contexts, because it is very focused on what I do, which is the workplace. So the definition I use is kind of a slimmed down version of the SAMHSA definition, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. Um, what I like about that definition is it doesn't focus on the incident itself. It focuses more on the needs of the person in front of you. Um, and so my version of that is that trauma is a psychological injury that affects performance. Um, and for me, that includes both the idea that we don't need to know what it was that caused it. I don't want managers going into everybody's, you know, their their reports, um, offices or cubicles and quizzing them about their childhoods. The issue here is, is the person in front of you struggling to perform in the way that they want to and need to because of a psychological injury? And if so, let's figure out how to help them. So that's my definition of trauma that I use in my work with organizations. Um, and then a trauma-informed organization, in my parlance, is an organization that is aware of both the prevalence and negative effects of trauma within the organization and works to mitigate those effects. So the goal here in my work with with um, organizations, which I should say includes companies, government agencies, um, schools, nonprofit organizations, all of whom are aiming to try to um, so better support their, um, their employees, their clients, and the communities they serve through periods of trauma and distress. Um, so the work that we're doing is all aimed at that, at figuring out um, who is in need of support and then what kind of support can we get them so that they can begin to thrive again. That's such great work, Catherine. And I know you bring such a wealth of experience with that, with the many different traumas that you dealt with at the Department of Justice. Uh, so when we talk about a trauma-informed workplace, what do you think it takes an organization to, to get to that point? And, you know, there's trauma-informed, and then we're really going to go, you know, try to get to the moon on this one with healing-centered. Uh, how do the organizations get there? So to me, there's really, um, I think of three pillars of a trauma-informed organization. Um, the first of those is a, a sense of acknowledgement. And that's for the people who work there that they know that they will be heard. Right. So within that, it's making sure that when someone does come forward to share that they're struggling, that they're met with an empathetic and supportive response, um, that spaces are held so that people can come forward. They know that it is OK to come forward in the first place um, and that people feel valued beyond just, you know, can you get this memo out by Friday, that people know that they are of worth in this organization. So that's the first pillar. The second pillar is support or, or the idea I can get help when I need it. And that includes things like making sure that we have mental health resources available in the organization, as well as other kinds of resources that are helpful to people who may, may be in need, anything from gender affirming care to um, 
racially specific mental health services to fertility treatments, all kinds of things that your workforce might really, really need in a crucial time in their life. Are, do, are we doing what we can to provide those kinds of services to people? And then on a, on a leadership level, it's important to make sure that people know about those services and that you model that it is okay to need help. So I talk a lot to leaders about modeling vulnerability, showing that it's okay to admit you made a mistake or talk about the fact that you take a break on, you know, in the evenings or on the weekends, or maybe you've gone back to therapy, or maybe you struggle with an addiction. Opening up about those things makes it possible for everybody else. I call it noisy self-care. That's what we need on the leadership level. So that's all the second pillar. And then the third pillar of a trauma-informed organization is fairness. That's the idea that I will be treated fairly in this organization. Can I trust that what you say is what you mean? There are so many organizations out there where they'll say, you know, our value is um is collaboration or or respect or creativity and yet they are ignoring the screamer down the hall <laughs> if you are ignoring the screamer down the hall none of those are your value and everybody knows it so we have to be willing to take uncomfortable action have difficult conversations in order to enforce these values if we really are to be a trauma-informed organization that's so great. And this is part of your laser. I love the acronym for the listen, acknowledge, support, empower, and then revisit. And um, I can't remember, Matthew, whether we said we were going to talk about this before the break or after the break, but it seems like we've led into it pretty well if we've got time. How are we doing on time, Matthew? Yeah, no, this is great. So, yeah, and that was going to be what I was going to ask was tell us about this process. But before we do that, Catherine, I've got like I get I get so much bubbling up as a previous school administrator. I think about how on so many levels what you just said, acknowledge, support slash model and fairness, how that those concepts seem so basic but yet they do not permeate permeate organizations and companies across our across our nation right and it is really some on some levels that simplistic where we humanize people and i, I it makes me think just 3 days ago was the anniversary of my mom's passing mm -hmm. and i was a principal at the time yeah. and I knew I was in a space with staff that I worked with. They didn't work for me. I worked with them. That that vulnerability could be real. And I stood in a space and said, you all, I can't be here right now. And I did that knowing that there was no judgment. There was no, um, it was all empathy. And it makes me go right to the title of that of your book. And I love the idea of an empathetic workplace, even more than a trauma informed, even more than a healing focus, because it doesn't have to be the death of a parent that invokes pre forgiveness and empathy. It could be I'm having a bad Tuesday because somebody broke into my car and threw things around my dashboard. It doesn't have to be complex. And so I was excited, as Carrie said, um, tell us about this, the laser and how you develop this process, because you've got me on the edge of my seat right now. And I'm, I'm sure listeners out there are probably feeling the same, but dig into that a bit. 
Sure. First, though, I just want to say, Matthew, I'm so glad that you had created an environment in that school where you were able to be open about it and know that you were going to get that support. That does not happen just, you know, <laughs> ad hoc. That that takes a lot of work to create that kind of trust um, in, in a workforce, in a team. And I also just want to highlight how much you get out of it on an individual level and also on an organizational level, because the reality is like, we are all going to have issues, right? A, a friend of mine had this on her team too. When her mother passed away, she probably took, I mean, two weeks off entirely and six weeks, she was not really very present at work and her team got it and they stepped up and everybody, it was seamless in terms of like externalities for her, her um, work, you know, the work that they were producing, but that only happened because they had already learned how to trust each other and that it was okay to not be okay. So I just want to commend you for having that, um, having created that kind of environment. Um, and I'm, I'm really sorry about the, the anniversary. I'm, I know that those are hard. So then on the laser technique, so um, laser really, it came out of this work that I was doing at the Justice Department and um, seeing again and again what victims of crime were craving, what they needed, um, and also seeing that so often um, people struggle to know what to say. People don't know what to say when somebody comes forward and shares something heavy. Um, and sometimes it, it helps to have um, a map. And so that's really what laser is. It's just a map for you to follow. Um, I, it has an acronym, I think, because I spent so many years in government that I, I just think in acronyms now. Um, but also, I know it's just helpful when because when we are in those situations, sometimes our minds go blank. And so if you can just remember, oh, right, I'm supposed to stay laser focused on the person in front of me and what it is that they need, then, then you'll be able to walk through it. So the five steps are listen, acknowledge, share, empower, and return. And just to go through them pretty quickly, listen is, um, you know, what you expect. I, I like to say, though, that active listening is more than just staying quiet. It's creating the circumstances where the person feels comfortable opening up. So let them know that you want to hear what they're sharing. Ask questions, open-ended questions. Who, what, where, when, what happened next? How did you feel? Let them know you want to hear. Encourage them, you know, nodding, saying, uh-huh, got it. All of that is very helpful. Another of my favorite active listening techniques is looping, where you just say back a little bit of what they've said. It shows that you're listening and can be very validating. Um, the next step is acknowledge. And this is the step I think is most often skipped. And when it is skipped is usually that's when the conversation starts to go poorly. Um, often we do a very good job of listening to somebody. We let them get their words out. But the whole time they're talking, we're thinking, here's the this thing I really need to share with them. I need to make sure they know about this, you know, resource or book or, or um, therapist. And that's all fantastic. And I hope that you do give them helpful information. But before you can share any information with them, they need to know that you heard what they said. So you have to acknowledge. Acknowledgement can be very, very simple. Just thank you for telling me all that. 
or I'm really sorry for everything you've been going through, or that sounds really hard or scary or upsetting or whatever it sincerely sounds to you. Just let them know that you heard them. One of my favorite quotes is from Teddy Roosevelt, and he said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You have to show them that you heard. Um, So that's step two. The third step is share information. One of the things I saw with crime victims was everybody craved more information. They wanted to know what was happening, what happened next, who knew what when. Everybody wanted information. And I think what happens when we're in periods of upheaval, of trauma, of distress, it sometimes feels like our world has been turned upside down. And that feeling of a loss of control can be really, really difficult. And so what we do when we are sharing information back with people, we're giving them back some of that power. John F. Kennedy said, in times of turmoil and turbulence, it's more true than ever that knowledge is power. So we share information. If you have any information about the facts, that's great to share. If this was an incident of workplace violence, everybody is going to be craving information about what happened. So share that information as quickly and accurately as you can, um, as quickly as you can accurately, I should say. So, but sometimes you don't know any facts. There's still other information you can share. You can share process information. You can tell people this is where complaints are filed. This is how they are investigated. These are how decisions will be made about reopening the office or whatever it is. So process information, in addition, values information. And these can be the organization's values or even your own personal values. You know, we take bullying very seriously, or I take these issues very seriously. Values information can also be helpful. And then also even being upfront about what you don't know. Maybe you have no idea how complaints are filed. Just be honest about that. Say, you know, I I don't actually know how these complaints are handled, but let me see what I can find out and I'll get back to you. When we are upfront about what we don't know, it builds trust. It shows that we are going to be a reliable source of information for them. So those are the first three steps. Listen, acknowledge, share. The fourth step is empower. And this step I think of as being as important for us as the listeners as it is for the person in trauma. A lot of us are are helpers. We really, really want to help others. We want to fix problems. And that is such a beautiful impulse. But it's important to remember that this is their journey to walk. It's not ours. Um, And they are the only ones who can walk it. If we try to take over, we are going to be disempowering them. Our goal is to help empower them because they know better what are the best next steps for them. So remember, this is their path to walk, but we can give them some tools that might help them along the way. A great place to start is how can I help you? What do you need right now? And then also be aware of some great resources that are out there. Maybe your workplace has phenomenal mental health resources. Know what those are. Um, Be familiar with them so that you can share them with people who need them. In addition, know about resources in your community. I hope everybody um, here in the U.S. is aware of 988, the Mental Health Crisis and Suicide Prevention Line, available 24-7 by phone or text. There are also other tremendous resources in every community around this country that um, I hope people are making good use of. 
a great place to find out about them is 211. It's just a, a great um, sort of clearinghouse for local nonprofit and community support organizations. So those are the four first four steps. Listen, acknowledge, share, and empower. And then the last one is return. This is both literally a return to the person to check in on them afterward, see how they're doing. I think sometimes um, people experience what I've heard called the vulnerability hangover. You know, they will open open up about something, particularly at work, and then afterward feel very embarrassed and concerned. Maybe I shouldn't have shared that. That was too much. I probably took up too much of her time. When we go back later, we show it it really was okay to open up to me, and I continue to be a source of support for you. So just check in later. What I do for this, it, it may seem um, kind of silly, but I will actually calendar it because you, you know, you may think that this conversation was so important. Of course, you're never going to forget it, but we all get busy. So I will just write a little note to myself on my calendar, CI, so check in Rob Ray, you know, his medical test or whatever it was. And um, that way, I just make sure that I don't forget to do that check-in. Um, but then finally, return is also importantly a return to ourselves. Supporting people in trauma and distress takes a toll on us, and we have to do what we can to protect protect our own mental health and well-being too. So we have to think about things like, do we have some sort of daily self-care routine? Is there something we're doing to take care of ourselves? Do we have a community of people that we lean on when we need help? And do we know our warning signs that we're beginning to suffer from burnout? Um, maybe we get a sore throat or have trouble sleeping or, um, you know, get more sarcastic. For me, I've got to admit, when I start to swear more often, I'm not somebody who swears very much. If suddenly I sound like a sailor, I know, oh, okay, maybe I need to take a little better care of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Carrie and I can both <laughs> empathize with that because I think uh, we, um, yes, we, we, we live in that space too. And, uh, you know, it, it made me think, um, it made me think of a lot of things. One, I'm, Carrie and I are both Stephen Coveyites. So I think habit five, seek first to understand, then to be understood. And the, the, uh, the art of empathic listening. And it is, um, I also say that I have the, what I, for those of 90 kids will appreciate this. I have the vanilla ice syndrome, which is if you have a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Right. <laughs> that is me. And I have to pause. I have to push that pause button. And I, it, it's a skill, right? It is a muscle that we have to learn where we got to learn the pause We've got to learn to literally be in that moment and listen without any type of response or solution to a potential problem. And I felt that that was the most powerful tool I had as a, as a school administrator, whether it was a kid, whether it was a parent or whether it was a teacher, it didn't matter. Um, I remember my school secretary saying, I don't understand Portel. They can come in and scream at you and then they're leaving hugging you. What is happening in there? Um, and my response is literally, I just listen. I just listen. And sometimes I validate and I don't approach this from a parent or from a principal perspective. I am, I'm connecting to them parent to parent um, because 
parenting was the hardest job that I had, even more than being a principal. And so I think what you said resonated a lot. So we knew this would go fast and we have just covered so much information Um, and it is time for us to take a break. So when we come back from the break, uh, we will dig into um, the idea of what is an ideal workspace and what does that look like? And, And we'll just dig in more into this topic because uh, I think all of us right now are yearning for this idea of an uh, in, in, of a workspace and place um, that is empathic, right? Right. In yeah. that and, and there'll be such good news that Catherine has to share about how she is helping a major organization that probably touches the lives of most of our listeners in one way or another get to this. So I'm really excited about what we'll be talking about when we come back. All right. We will be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Well, it's, as you can tell, it's not Ingrid Cochran. We've got Matthew Portell, who uh, is the 
regular co-host, and I'm the step-in co-host. I'm Carrie Sipp, the Director of Strategic Partnerships at Paces Connection. And it's so thrilling to have Catherine Manning with us because she is a very knowledgeable person who has worked in situations where there has been some incredibly intense trauma and in her job uh, for 15 years as an attorney in the Justice Department. And she has seen a lot and she's written about a lot in this wonderful book, The Empathetic Workplace. And we just went over uh, some of Catherine's background and how growing up in a domestic violence situation, that being able to escape that uh, led her to want to understand more about this. And she went on to, to law school at UVA and to work at the Justice Department. And in seeing how much trauma there is in the workplace, and one thing in your book, Catherine, that really stood out to me is that attorneys are the second only to mental health workers in their level of burnout, uh, which is really interesting, but it makes perfectly good sense because they're hearing horrible things and they have people really wanting, wanting lots from them. But as we talk about what a trauma-informed workplace or a healing-centered workplace would look like. I just wonder, uh, you know, what would a healing-centered law firm look like? Uh, and, and how would we get there? <laughs> oh, it's such a great question. And it's something that I've been um, really working on quite a bit over the last few months with one company in particular, which is called Ketchum. They're a communications and consulting company. And uh, they came to me last summer and said, we want to figure out how to be a trauma-informed company. <laughs> and I thought, well, that is fantastic. Yeah, so this is the great news <laughs> that I was alluding to because I've known about Ketchum for years and even interviewed for a job there about 47,000 years ago. And they touched the lives of so many people with their massive client list roster of Fortune 500 companies. So this is very exciting. Tell us more. Yeah, I mean, and with, um, as you know, Carrie, people who are working in communications or public relations are often called upon to respond instantaneously to tragedies that are happening out in the world. And they're being called upon to not even, you know, it, it's like you see this horrible thing happening and, you know, maybe an insurrection at the Capitol. And instantly, they don't even get a chance to process it, think about how that feels for them or what they think of it, they've instantly got to be um, uh, responding to it in a helpful way for their clients. Um, and because of the nature of their work, they can't ever escape the news. They always have to be engaged with it. You know, for me personally, I, I am pretty much off of Twitter. I just try to really limit my intake of news because that's how I can better support my own mental health. But for people who are working in PR and comms, you don't really have that ability. You have to continually engage age. Well, and one thing I want to think about, too, is that, and, and I think that truly great communicators will look at what's going on and, and say, 
if I'm not the problem, there is no solution. So let's all the workplaces look and see how are we contributing to the stresses in the world that are causing people to snap that are, you know, leading to one in five Americans have a family member that has been has died because of gun violence. One in 10 African-American children is an, is is orphaned, has lost one, if not both parents. Uh, you know, the state of mental health in this country is horrible and workplaces you know, we, we come from a history of uh, a, a nation that was built on stolen land, people who were slaughtered to take their land, and then people who were kidnapped and enslaved. We built an incredible economy on the backs of African people and squeezing every drop of work out of people. And that carried forward into you know, we look at our measure of, uh, as a nation, our success by our gross domestic product. So how are businesses truly setting up this? And, and what are, I wonder what Ketchum says about that. How, how are they going to turn that around? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to underscore what you're saying, I I hope that you saw the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, recently had an initiative calling on workplaces to do more to support mental health among the workforce and recognizing that this is part of the central role of workplaces is you have to recognize um, the impact of work on mental health and and how that affects the health of all of us as a country. So I think that's so important. Um, and just as you were talking, Carrie, this might be silly, but I kept thinking about Ted Lasso. I don't know if you're watching oh, Ted Lasso. Yes. Love the Ted Lasso. Oh, yes. I mean, lessons of on life and love and and how to treat people and how to not treat people. <laughs> yes, I I um, recently watched um, uh, an episode where Ted has this kind of beautiful. Um, sort of soliloquy at the end of the episode to his team that's all feeling so guilty and bad that they've lost been on a losing streak. And he's like, you know, maybe we can get to a place where our self-worth is not based on how we performed on a particular task. <laughs> right? Can we get to that point? And that's really what we're trying to do with organizations is help you see that, you know, Okay, it is possible. I will admit you can lead with fear and you can get some really astounding things out of people in a short time period. When you bully and threaten, people will work very, very hard for you out of fear. But when you do that, you are building your house on a minefield. You have no idea what is going to happen. Um, because if you say, if you don't get me this, but you know, by Friday, you're fired, you're going to get it by Friday. Friday, but you're not going to hear about all of the mistakes, issues, problems that are contained within it. And that's going to happen at some point that will eventually come out. You know, uh, one of the cases I worked on at DOJ was the Larry Nassar case, the U.S. Olympics <gasps> gymnastics. And I think part of what created the culture where he was able to abuse more than 200 girls and women was that there was a culture of fear on that team that these girls were told, you know, you're not allowed to be hungry. You're not allowed 
allowed to be injured. You're not allowed to be tired. If you complain at all, we have a line a mile long of girls waiting to take your place. And so they thought, I can't open up. I can't talk about what's happening to me. Nobody cares. And so what happens? We end up with horrific abuse. We end up with, you know, all of these lawsuits against U.S. women's Olympics gymnastics, the Caroli farm, you know, that they built has been shut down. I mean, yes, they won a lot of medals, but at what cost? And what was, you know, if we look at the long term, was it worth it? Well, and you look at the same situation. Think about a, 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 a young mother working minimum wage, which the minimum wage has not gone up in this country since 2009. She has a new baby, can't bond with the new baby because she's got to get back to work, can't find child care in this country. You know, the, the, uh, the Gallup uh, World Happiness Report came out two weeks ago, and the Finland, of course, is number one again for I don't know how many years in a row. And the United States is 15th. And because we don't do those things, the same thing that you're talking about with Nassar's people, you can't be hungry, you can't be tired, you can't not show up for work. And by the way, we're going to schedule you, you've got to come here and we may send you home. But be happy about it because hey, you get to keep your job. So, you know, how is Ketchum going to the idea of, you know, if we had three or four Fortune 500 companies saying, oh, we are not going to contribute to this problem anymore. If I'm not the problem, there is no solution. We're looking at this. You know, what would that be like if we created a culture of healing centered work? I mean, how happy would you be? How happy would we all be? I know, right? You know, so what we've been doing with Ketchum is um, it starts off always with mindset. You've really got to get the leadership of the organization on board and recognizing the value of this work, seeing that this is something that is worthwhile um, to take on. And there is a lot of research to to help you make that case. So we talked about that a lot at Ketchum. Um, Jim Joseph, who's the president of the company, had a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with a lot of the, the leaders of the company. He even talked to some of the clients about what they were doing and the value of it, under, helping them understand why this was so important. Um, so you really have to get people on board. And, and one of the things we talked about was, if you are trying to build a trauma-informed initiative, you can't start with, well, it's my way or the highway, right? Like you really do have to make sure that you are leading this initiative in a trauma-informed way. And that means it's okay for people to ask questions, to push back, to say, I'm not sure this is worth it, or, you know, I don't know how this is going to go, or I'm afraid it's going to be really hard. Um, build in space for all of those questions because it's important. Everything else will flow from that. You have to spend the time on the front end to kind of build that buy-in from the beginning. So that was phase one. Then phase two was training. And we did for their top 50 leaders in the company, we did five hours of basic trauma-informed training, and then which is what I did. And then 
We had another consultant named Dawn Shedrick, who specializes in trauma in traditionally marginalized communities. And she did an additional three hours of training on that topic. So eight hours of live training for the top 50 leaders of the company. And then we built a, a shorter version, like an abbreviated version, online asynchronous that's being rolled out company-wide. And we also did that in phases because we wanted to make sure that, you know, were we losing too much when we brought it down from eight hours to one? Were we building in enough opportunities for conversation and reflection in the shorter training? So we did that in phases as well. And that's now going out company-wide. And then phase three is the implementation. And this is what Jim says. He says this, this, this uh, trauma-informed practice is always in beta. Like you are never going to get to the point where you say, well, we're done. We've done everything here. This is an ongoing conversation. And they're looking at everything from their hiring practices. They're looking at onboarding. They're looking at um, how do they respond to issues in the news, both for their clients and for themselves. They're creating intentional spaces where people can bring up issues and talk about them with a, a, an outside expert facilitator. So there's a lot of work that comes after the training is where you really have to help build this culture. And that is going to be unique to every organization. The way Ketchum does it is not the same way another company would do it. Um, so it has to really be based on you and what, what works for your company. You know, and Matthew, does this not bring to mind the Paces Connection milestones tracker where we help organizations within our cross-sector communities get on a pathway to becoming, quote unquote, trauma informed. And it starts with educating everyone in the organization about the science of positive and adverse childhood experiences, because people need a why, right? And to understand that if people are traumatized, it's going to hurt their health. It's going to hurt the health of their children, the long term outcomes that we're evoking uh, you know, four ACEs and your likelihood of cancer, uh, COPD, heart attack goes up doubles. And, and yet the workplaces are helping create the situations because of poverty, racism. So this tool is, is, was created to help everyone everywhere all the time be on a path toward you know, getting HR involved in onboarding and offboarding and getting buy-in from the CEOs and getting the organization involved in their, uh, their PACES community and looking at their DEI and, oh, by the way, are we taking this out then to our customers and our client or our clients and patients? So, uh, you know, Maybe you could share our tool with them <laughs> because um, it it's a way of we got to make it sticky, right? I'm sure if anybody can make it sticky, catch them will make it sticky, um, doable, memorable, and um, and quantifiable, right? I mean, I'm sure they've got measures in there because turnover, employee absenteeism, uh, workplace violence. Uh, presenteeism, you know, are they are they tracking all of that? Yeah, I mean, we're we're kind of building all of that stuff right now um, to make sure that we have quantifiable measures and we can we can um, come up with the case for it. But honestly, um, they they are especially Jim Joseph, the the um, the CEO. He is so 
full-throated in his support for this, that he believes it's the right thing to do. That well, it's going to save the planet. It'll save yeah. the planet. I mean, the only way that, that we're going to turn things around is if people don't go home from work ready to chew the heads off of live baby kittens because they've been reamed out at work because then they go home and they attack their spouses and the children absorb it. And mm -hmm. then the children go to school upset and can't function and learn and on and on and on it goes. So this is great to know we've got to get them involved in our healing centered workplaces conference that you're going to be keynoting on the, uh, I think the final day um, in, in June. We're really excited about that. Excited too. Well, and I, I want to jump in really quick, Catherine, because you've said uh, there's been so much that's been said. And one key that I, I heard you say that I think people need to hear is it started with the leadership. Um, and I will tell you, I, I didn't buy into that when I began the work as a school administrator until I had to, when I realized and own my role in creating a culture of what you've described. And I also want to go in to say, I've always said, this is a journey. There is no destination. And to be quite frank and honest, nobody has it figured out, but there's some people that are on the trajectory of doing that, which is what you've just described. And then lastly, when you said Ted Lasso, it made me laugh. I was literally laughing because I described my leadership style, the old, the, the newer version of Michael Scott, not the older one, because he was really bad, but the newer version um, and Ted Lasso. That is exactly how I describe my leadership style all the way down to we had tracksuit Tuesdays at my school where we got tracksuits made with our names on the back and we customized them uh, because some of the workplace piece is also humanizing, right? And having fun. It is okay to laugh. It's okay to connect. It's okay to cry. Um, and and it's got to be okay right now for me to go get a chiropractic adjustment so that I feel okay. So I'm going to say, Catherine, it was great to be with you. Matthew, thank you for letting me pinch hit. But um, I, I want to be um, healing-centered for myself and these good people. So thank you both for letting me um, be you. here Modeling today. self-care, Carrie. <laughs> oh, we got to do it. I mean, from the top down, if we don't, um, you know, it, the, the, the fish rots from the top down, right? Yep. Peace. Thank you both. Bye-bye. But what I was getting to, Catherine, is there's so many aspects to this work, right, that that there are systems and structures that we have to have in place. So if if someone's listening and they're a new leader or they're taking on a CEO role or they're starting in a new organization, what are some first steps that you guide leaders in to say, here's how to – because this doesn't come natural for a lot of people. And I've learned that corporations, organizations, private and public – don't necessarily always seek people with this mindset, right? A lot of times it's product driven or in education test scores, right? It, how do you well, how do you guide people that may not innately come in with this idea um, in this work? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you are very correct that it is not innate for a lot of people. A lot of people have maybe had negative experiences and are feeling a little uncomfortable with the idea. There was a business solver survey where they found that 78% of CEOs lacked confidence in their empathy skills and 76% worried they'd be seen as weak if they expressed empathy at work. So I think that for a lot of people, they feel nervous about it. Can I do this well? And what will people people think if I express empathy or vulnerability. I think it's important to, um, first of all, just acknowledge that there's not something wrong with you if you are concerned that you don't know how to do it well, or you're afraid that, um, you know, it's it's going to be inappropriate, or are you, are you going to step on somebody's toes? But I will also... Um, also highlight for you that there is additional research that shows that what people really want is empathy at work, that managers who are empathetic outperform other managers on every measure they looked at in, in one global study that they did. So um, empathy is an important skill for somebody in a management role. And don't worry if you are um, if you are concerned that you are not very good at it, there are ways to get better at it. Um, one of the first things I always say is, is just build your curiosity. Just listen, right? Um, uh, don't jump in with the problem solving, Matthew, as you talked about earlier. Try to, try to. Um, if you have that knee jerk reaction, just notice it and stop yourself. Like, let me just listen for a second. Because nine times out of 10, as you saw as a principal, um, what people need is the listening. They don't need you to come up with the problem solving for them. Um, they will come up with those solutions on their own if they feel empowered to do so. And most of the time, frankly, the solutions they come up with are better than what we would come up with anyway. So just give them a chance to do that. And then also build the, I, I call it mastering the art of the quick check-in. So um, there was research that showed that psychological safety is highest on teams where managers checked in with their direct reports at least once a week. So just do that check-in and the check-in is not give me the status of your projects you're working on. It's something about them, know something about them. So um, how was soccer this weekend or what are you reading right now? Ask them something that shows that you are interested in them beyond what they can produce for you. Um, it doesn't need to take a long time but honestly, I have a friend who's a phenomenal manager. She's a political appointee at DOJ who has just incredible things on her plate. But she'll say, you know, if I'm doing a 30-minute check-in with an employee, we might spend 25 minutes on all the outside of work stuff, because if we can get through that, we can handle the work stuff in five minutes. So be willing to devote that time. It really does pay off. Oh, my, I think my, I'm going to have to go to the chiropractor too, because my neck is hurting from shaking it. Yes. <laughs> during this last hour, but, and it is true. And I, I have a saying that I say, if we wait until we do something perfect all the time, we will start nothing. Um, and I think you're right. And, you know, solutions are sometimes um, not a, a not a response to a problem. Um, it's a solution is being able to talk about what is happening. And I, I, I value what you said so much. And I hope that our listeners do and flex that muscle, build that skill. Um, I've, I'm married. I've been married for a long time. I've had to 
learn that skill, right? And and what you just described also worked with the students in the school that I led. If I knew mom was sick last night, I would have to make a conscious effort to go back and say, hey, how's mama doing today? Or how's your brother? Or and if they attended the school, that's human connection, authentic, real human connection. I didn't want anything out of it. I genuinely wanted to know how they were and how their family was. Um, and I think if we can get to that point, um, and I will tell you, when I left the school, three months later, we found out we were reward school. And never once did we top prioritize academics. We top prioritize humanizing our field and seeing the social and emotional health of everyone involved. And so I hope, and um, Dr. Dr. Um, uh, Chan Hellman says, you can wish and you can hope. Hope is where you can actually take steps to do something different. Wish is it's just out in the world. I hope that people can get your book, read it, and begin to implement these in the workplace because this is transformational work. This is the work that we need to happen globally. And it is the next step for this trauma-informed movement. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your expertise. Thank you for your stories. Um, and we cannot wait to have you at our conference in June. So if you haven't registered, please do come hear more from Catherine and so many more at our conference. And thank you for listening as always. And please, you all have a great, whatever it is where you're listening, night, morning, or evening. Um, and we will see you back next week. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.